Chapter twenty six of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, part three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, part three, by Francois Rene de Chateaubriand. Chapter twenty six. London from April to September, eighteen twenty two. Fontaine, Clary. From time to time, the tide of emigration carried over to us companions of a new species and new opinions, and different strata of exiles were formed. The earth contains beds of sand and clay deposited by the waves of the flood. One of these waves brought me a man, whose loss I still at this time deplore, a man who was my guide in literature, and whose friendship constituted one of the honours as well as one of the consolations of my life. In a previous part of these memoirs it has been mentioned that I had become acquainted with Monsieur de Fontaine in 1789. It was only last year in Berlin I received news of his death. He was born at Niort of a noble Protestant family. His father had had the misfortune to kill his brother-in-law in a duel. Young Fontaine, having been brought up by a very deserving brother, came to Paris. He saw Voltaire die, and this great representative of the eighteenth century inspired his first verses. His poetical attempts were noticed by Laab. He undertook the composition of some pieces for the theatre, and formed a connection with Mademoiselle de Garcin, a delightful actress. He lodged near the Odéon, and wandering around the Chartreuse, he celebrated its solitude. He had met with a friend destined to become one of mine, Monsieur Joubert. On the occurrence of the Revolution, the poet embraced one of those stationary parties which always perish torn in pieces by the party in favour of progress which pulls it forward or the retrograde which draws it back the monarchist engaged m de fontaine as an editor of the moderateur when the evil days came he took refuge in lyons and there married his wife was confined of a son during the siege of the city which the revolutionists called commune affranchie as louis the eleventh by banishing all the citizens had called arras ville franchise Madame de Fontaine was obliged to remove her nursling's cradle in order to shelter it from the shells. Being again in Paris on the ninth Thermidor, Monsieur de Fontaine joined Monsieur de Laarpe and the Abbé de Vauxelles in establishing the Memorial. Prescribed on the eighteenth Fructidor, England became his harbour of refuge. Monsieur de Fontaine was with Chenier the last writer of the classical school of the elder branch. His prose and his poetry resemble each other, and have merits of the same kind. His thoughts and images exhibit a melancholy unknown to the age of Louis the Fourteenth, which knew nothing but the austere and holy sadness of religious eloquence. This melancholy was found mingled in the works of the author of the Jour des Morts, as the impress of the period in which he lived. It fixes the date of his advent, and proves that he was born after J. J. Rousseau, and attached by taste to Fenelon. Were any one to reduce M. de Fontaine's writings to two very small volumes, one of prose and one of verse, it would constitute one of the most appropriate funereal monuments which could be raised over the tomb of the classical school. In the papers which my friend left were several cantos of a poem called La Grèce Sauvée, some odes, and various other poetical pieces. He never, however, published anything, for this critic so acute and lightened, and when not influenced by political opinion so impartial, had himself an extreme terror of criticism. He was supremely unjust towards Madame de Steel an envious article of garras upon the forêt de navarre was intended to stop her short at the very commencement of her poetical career fontaine on his appearance destroyed the affected school of dora 
but he was unable to re-establish the classical school which drew near its close with the language of racine among the posthumous odes of m de fantin there is one upon the anniversaire de sa naissance a birthday ode it possesses all the charm of the jeux des morts with a deeper and more individual feeling i remember only two stanzas la vieillesse déjà vient avec ses souffrances que m'offre l'avenir de courte espérance que m'offre le passé des fautes des regrets tel est le sort de l'homme il s'instruit avec l'âge mais que sont d'être sage quand le terme est si près le passé le présent l'avenir toute m'afflige la vie a son déclin et pour moi son prestige dans le miroir du temps elle perd ses appas plaisir allez chercher l'amour et la jeunesse laissez-moi ma tristesse et ne l'insultez pas could m de fontaine have felt an antipathy to anything it must have been to my manner of writing in me there began a complete revolution in french literature with the school called the romantic my friend however instead of rising in rebellion against my barbarism became a passionate admirer i noticed great admiration in his face when i read to him portions of my natchez atala and rene he found it impossible to reduce these productions to the common rules of criticism but he felt that he was entering into a new world he saw a new nature and comprehended a language which he was unable to speak i received excellent advice from him and to him i am indebted for all that is correct in my style he taught me to respect the ear he prevented me from falling into the extravagance of invention and the harshness of execution of my imitators it was a great pleasure to me to see him again in london fated by the emigres he was asked for cantos from la grece sauvée and they pressed round in order to listen to him he took a lodging near me and we never quitted each other more we were present together at a scene worthy of those times of misfortune clary just lately landed read us his manuscript memoir judge of the emotions of an auditory of exiles listening to louis the sixteenth's valet chambre relating as an eye-witness the sufferings and death of the prisoner of the temple the directory afraid of the effects of clary's memoirs published an interpolated edition of them in which the author was made to speak like a lackey and louis the sixteenth like a porter among all the examples of revolutionary baseness this perhaps is one of the foulest a vendean peasant m duteil the count d'artois agent in london hastened to inquire for m de fontaine the latter begged me to take him to the agent's house we found him surrounded by all the defenders of the throne and the altar who lounged about in piccadilly by a crowd of spies and pickpockets who had escaped from paris under different names and different disguises and with a host of belgian german and irish traders in the counter-revolution in a corner of the crowd stood a man about thirty or thirty-two years of age to whom no one paid attention and who himself paid attention to nothing except an engraving of the death of general wolf struck with his appearance i made some inquiries concerning him one of my neighbours replied he's nothing merely a vendean peasant the bearer of a letter from his chiefs this man who was nothing had seen the death of catalino the first general of la vendee and a peasant like himself of Bonchamp, the revived image of bayard of lescure armed with hair-cloth not proof against balls of delbet shot in his armchair his wounds preventing him from embracing death standing of la roche jacquelin the identification of whose dead body 
was ordered by the patriots in order to calm the fears of the convention in the midst of their victories this man who was nothing had been present at the capture and recapture of two hundred towns villages and redoubts at seven hundred skirmishes and in seventeen pitched battles he had fought against three hundred thousand regular troops between six hundred thousand and seven hundred thousand conscripts and national guards he had helped to carry off a hundred pieces of cannon and fifty thousand stand of arms he had passed through the colonne infernal companies of incendiaries commanded by conventionists he had been in the midst of that ocean of flame which on three different occasions rolled its waves over the woods of la vendee and finally he had seen three hundred thousand rural herculeses the companions of his labours perish and a hundred square leagues of fertile country changed into a desert of ashes old and young france met on this soil thus levelled by them all that remained in france of the blood and remembrances of the crusades struggled against all that there was in revolutionary france of new blood and new hopes the conqueror was sensible of the greatness of the vanquished Tourot, the republican general declared that the vendeans would be placed in history in the first ranks of a martial people another general wrote to melan de thionville troops which have beaten the french may well flatter themselves with being able to beat all other people the legions of probus in their songs said as much of our forefathers bonaparte called the battles of la vendee battles of giants in all this clamorous mob i was the only one to look with admiration and respect on the representative of those old jacques who in the reign of charles v whilst in the very act of shaking off the yoke of their feudal superiors repelled a foreign invasion he appeared to me like a son of those communes of the time of charles the seventh who united with the lower nobility of the province reconquered the soil of france foot by foot and ridge by ridge he had the careless air of a savage his look was grim and inflexible as a bar of iron his lower lip quivered against his closed teeth his hair fell from his head like torpid serpents but ready to resume their vigour his arms hanging by his sides gave a nervous motion to his immense fists covered with sabre scars he might have been taken for a sawyer his countenance was that of an honest rustic nature by the force of circumstances put to the service of interests and ideas contrary to that nature the native feudality of the vassal and the simple faith of the christian were mingled in him with the rude independence of a plebeian accustomed to estimate and to do himself justice the feeling of liberty seemed in him to be the consciousness of the power of his hands and of the intrepidity of his heart he spoke no more than a lion he scratched himself like a lion gaped like a lion threw himself on his side like a tired lion and apparently to dream of blood and forests what men of all parties were the french of that day and what a race are we now but the republicans had their principle within them in the midst of them while that of the royalists lay out of france the vendeans sent deputies to the exiles the giants sent to ask chiefs from the pygmies the rustic messenger at whom i gazed had seized the revolution by the throat and exclaimed come in go behind me it shall do you no harm it shall not move a step i have got it fast no one wished to enter then jacques bonhomme let go his hold of the revolution and charette broke his sword wales with fontaine whilst i was making these reflections on the sturdy vendean as i had made those of another kind at the sight of mirabeau and danton fontaine obtained a private audience of him whom he pleasantly called the controller general of finance he came out well satisfied with his interview m dutte had given him a promise to encourage the publication of my works and fontaine thought only of me there could not be a better man 
timid in everything which related to himself but full of courage under the impulse of friendship of this he gave me the best proof at the time of my resignation on the occasion of the death of the duc d'enghien in conversation he used to burst out into laughable fits of literary passion on politics he talked nonsense the crimes of the conventionalists had filled him with a feeling of horror for liberty he detested journals philosophizing and ideology and imparted the same feeling to bonaparte in his intercourse with the master of europe we often went to walk together in the country we used to stop under the shade of some of those large elms scattered about in the fields leaning against the trunk of one of these trees my friend used to give me an account of his former travels in england before the revolution and of the verse which he at that time addressed to two young ladies now mouldering under the shadow of the towers of westminster towers which he found standing as he had left them whilst the illusions and hours of his youth lay buried at their base we used to dine in some quiet tavern at chelsea on the thames and enjoyed ourselves with conversing on milton and shakespeare they had seen what we saw they had sat where we sat on the banks of the river to us a foreign but to them a native stream we returned to london at night by the light of the fading stars obscured one after another by the haze of the city we regained our home guided by the uncertain light which feebly traced out the way through the thickness of the smoke coloured of a reddish hue around each lamp thus flows on the poet's life we visited london in detail as an old exile i acted as cicerone to the new victims of exile young or old which the revolution demanded there is no legal age for misfortune during one of these excursions we were overtaken by a violent thunderstorm and obliged to seek for shelter in a shabby house the door of which happened accidentally to be open we there met the duc de bourbon at this chantilly i saw for the first time a prince who was not yet the last of the condes the duc de bourbon fontaine and myself were equally proscribed and in a foreign land obliged to seek for shelter under an humble roof against the same storm fata viam inveniant fontaine was called back to france he embraced me with eager wishes for our next and early meeting when he reached germany he wrote me the following letter july twenty eighth seventeen ninety eight if you have felt any regret at my departure from london i assure you mine has not been less real you are the second person in whom during the whole course of my life i have met with an imagination and a heart completely to my taste i shall never forget the consolation which i have derived from you during my exile in a foreign land my dearest and most constant thoughts since i took leave of you turn upon the natchez what you read to me especially very lately is admirable and will never leave my memory but the charm of all the poetical ideas with which you impressed me immediately fled on my arrival in germany the most dreadful news from france have followed those with which i made you acquainted on leaving you i have been kept for five or six days in the most harassing anxiety in dread even of persecutions against my family my fears are to-day greatly diminished the evil has been but very slight the threat greater than the blow and the exterminators wish for people of a different date from mine the last courier has brought me assurance of peace and goodwill i can continue my journey and i propose to set out early in the ensuing month my abode will be fixed near the forest of st germain among my family greece and my books would i could also say the natchez the unexpected storm which has just burst upon paris has been caused i am certain by the blunders of the agents and chiefs with whom you are acquainted i have a clear proof of it in my hands on coming to this conclusion i wrote to great pulteney street where m du lived with all possible politeness but also 
with all that circumspection which prudence demands. I wish to avoid all correspondence, at least just now, and I remain in the greatest doubt what I ought to do, and what place of sojourn I ought to choose. I still speak of you with the accents of friendship, and wish from the bottom of my heart that any hopes of usefulness which may rest upon me may serve to keep alive those kindly feelings which have been ascribed to me, and which are so fully due to your person and your distinguished talents. Work, work, my dear friend, become illustrious, and you can do so, the future belongs to you. I hope the promise so often made by the Controller General of Finance has been, at least, in part, kept. That part consoles me, for I cannot bear the idea of a fine work being stopped for want of some pecuniary aid. Write to me, let our hearts communicate, and our muses be always friends. Be assured that as soon as I can go about freely in my native land, I shall prepare for you a hive and flowers beside my own. My attachment is unalterable. I shall be alone as long as I am not near you. Tell me about your studies. I wish to congratulate you on completing your work. I have composed the half of a new poem on the banks of the Elbe, and I am more satisfied with it than with all the others. Adieu. I embrace you tenderly and remain your friend, Fontan. Fontan informs me that he is composing verses on changing his exile. A poet never can be deprived of everything. He carries his lyre along with him. Leave the swan her wings. Every evening some unknown river will repeat the melodious lamentations which she would rather have sung on the Eurotas. The future is yours. Did Fontan here speak truly? Ought I to congratulate myself on his prediction? Alas! The future there announced is now become the past. Shall I have another? The first and affecting letter which I ever received from the first friend whom I had in my life, and who, since the date of that letter, has walked twenty-three years by my side, gives me mournful warning of my progressive isolation. Fontaine is no more. Deep sorrow for the tragical death of a son brought him to an early grave. Almost all those of whom I have spoken in these memoirs have disappeared from the stage of life, and I keep merely an obituary register. Yet a few years, and I myself, condemned to catalogue the dead, shall leave no one behind to inscribe my name in the book of the departed. But if I must remain alone, and none who love me shall survive to conduct me to my last asylum, I have still less need than others of a guide. I have examined the way, and studied the places through which I must pass. I have desired to see what takes place at the last moment." Oftentimes, standing by the side of a grave into which the coffin has been let down by cords, I have listened to the rattling of these cords. Then came the sound of the first shovelful of earth thrown upon the coffin. At every succeeding cast the hollow sound diminished, and the earth, in filling up the grave by degrees, caused eternal silence to ascend to the surface of the tomb. Fontan, you have written, may our muses be always friends. To me, you have not written in vain. End of chapter 26